Hi guys, welcome back to Storytime Podcast. I am your host, Haley Lira, and for one, I'm so thankful for you guys tuning in. For two, if you're interested in really delving in deeper like I always am, and you want to see pictures and video and court testimony and all those gruesome details, go check out my Instagram or my Facebook And um, I will actually attach those to my episode notes. On there, I'm going to post all the little details that everybody, you know, really wants to see related to these crimes. Full disclosure, though, today's topic is moms who murder. This is something that I'm personally fascinated by and I always find interesting to discuss and listen to. However, The children that these moms murdered were their own children, and I just wanted to give everybody a heads up. I know that child crimes are especially heinous and hard for some audience members to listen to. If this is not for you, please come back next week. I got you, and we'll have something else going on. For those of you who are staying, let's get started. Okay, so the first woman that we're going to talk about is Michelle Kehoe. And what strikes me about Michelle Kehoe's case is I always find it interesting when somebody who is actually a victim, such as her husband, pleads for mercy of their child's assailant. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tell you guys about Michelle and her web of lies before we untangle what happened. Her name is Michelle Kehoe, and she has been sentenced for murder attempted murder and child endangerment at the time she would have been in her early 30s so she met her husband in 1993 and she was someone who he really loved he said that they enjoyed his time with her and it wasn't for years that he slowly untangled her web of traumatic childhood events and that she ever showed signs of a deteriorating mental health she had a suicide attempt in the garage once he said but It wasn't until life got really hard in 2007 that really rocked Michelle's world. See, she'd had a terrible car wreck in 07, and four men had to rescue her and her boys from the car. Apparently, they had run off the road into some type of stream of flowing water, and I believe that it may have potentially been raining or had rained recently because apparently it was like a pretty big, you know, flow of water. Then Jean lost his job, and a boy that she watched at the daycare was killed by his father. I think the crack was when Michelle's mom, who she'd moved away from when she was 13 because her stepdad had been sexually abusing her. When her mom became sick, though, Michelle reconnected with her and spent more time with her than ever before. So, you know, this is about so you know about 17 years then after these traumatic events that took place in Michelle's childhood where she didn't talk to her mom she then reconnected with her so so let's discuss Michelle's events on the day of October 26 2008 this is her story Michelle was going to take her boys to visit their grandma she had a seven-year-old named Sean and a two-year-old named Seth She initially told the police that a man got into her van with her at a park in Jessup, where her and the boys were out stretching their legs and playing. She gives the police an entire description of the man, and her story was that he forced her to drive to a remote location 
Then she had to fight him where he hit her and rendered her unconscious. At some time after that, he duct taped her hands and feet. She said by the time she could get herself free, the boys were gone and that she found them with their necks cut. The man then came to attack her and she had really large lacerations across her neck as well. The next day, she was able to make it in her car, back to her car, where she was able to drive her and the boys to a neighbor's house that was near this um, isolated area. The woman called 911, reporting a woman who had allegedly been standing in her doorway and just collapsed over, covered in blood, didn't really know what was going on, said that they were attacked, First responders come, Michelle and her sons, you know, are are sought out for aid. However, it was at the hospital before going into surgery for her neck lacerations that Michelle ultimately confessed the entire story had been fabricated and that she, in fact, had attacked her children and tried to kill herself. What Michelle confessed to was ultimately a premeditated attack on her two boys and herself in a murder-suicide attempt. See, a month before this event in September of 2008, she had bought the Winchester hunting knife and roll of duct tape that she would ultimately use to bound her sons in an attempt killing them. She told her husband, Gene, that the boys were going to go visit their grandma, her mother, and then she ended up though driving them down a secluded road, duct taping their eyes and mouths and everything shut, making lacerations across their necks. First, she started by taking the boys out of the car and she duct taped her seven-year-old's eyes and mouth before she made several lacerations across his neck. She then did the same thing to her two-year-old son. Um, She did succeed in the murder of her two-year-old son but she actually did not succeed in murdering her seven-year-old. He even pulled his own duct tape off and watched what his mom did as she attacked his baby brother. I'm actually going to play an audio clip of seven-year-old Sean in the courtroom testifying about what his mother had done to him and his brother. Michelle then slit her own throat and laid out in the road, just waiting to die, basically. Sean had moved himself back into the van and locked the doors, which is so heartbreaking to me that he just only thought to get back in the car and lock it. Ah, that's awful. So 
At some point the next morning, she drove her and her boys for help. And that is where she then claimed to have been attacked by somebody, her and her boys. Heartbreaking story. Also, her claim of being attacked is so ridiculous. Her story of like just a, just a random attack on them was so far-fetched to me anyway. Um, you can tell that she was for sure not in her right state of mind even coming up with that shit. So, let's see. As it turned out, Michelle had a history of mental illness that stemmed from whatever one causes this in human, probably a lot of things like, you know, the sexual abuse she endured until she moved in with her aunt at 13. Both her parents were alcoholics and her her biological father actually killed himself when she was only six years old. She had six prior suicide attempts before she tried to kill her boys. She'd been to treatment programs and she had experienced over 44 shock treatments. This is crazy. All right, so what happened? She ultimately gave a written confession before she went into surgery. As we know, her surgery wounds were self-inflicted. She was ultimately sentenced to life without parole and a 25 sentence on top of that. The judge, Bruce Zager, extended a no-contact order for their surviving son, Stephen, who was seven years old at the time of the attack. And Jean was not allowed contact either. Now, I know this initial ruling was for five years, and I have yet to find anything else about how the family proceeded after that. Now, like I said, something that was so interesting to me about this case is that her husband, Jean, maintained that people do not understand because Michelle was such a good wife and mom. According to him, um, he struggled but ultimately forgave her. And although he couldn't talk to her and he's not even able to send a message in his own way, he says that he still supports and loves Michelle. Uh, I'm actually going to get play a video of Jean's statements during the sentencing trial and Michelle's statements. We still love Michelle as a wife, mother, and friend, and hope that she receives the treatment that she needs. Yes, and now I'm going to play Michelle's, and I do apologize for the sound quality. Um, this is just the sound quality of the recording in general from the court. Nothing I can control. I will definitely post these videos onto my social media websites. This case and trial is awful. They ultimately banned the family testimony for the defense, which I agree with. I thought that um, it was, for one, a really hard situation because the victims are also, you know, members of Michelle's family and want kind of what was best for her too, which was so bizarre. So I was really glad that they just banned family testimony so it just wouldn't cloud the jury's judgment um and they also had to have the trial moved to get a fair trial but i mean that's to be expected now i do want to give you guys it's an old statistic but it's the best i could find relating to this according to the bureau of justice statistics from 2002 of all murders committed by a family member 85.4 percent are made up of parents killing their sons or daughters below the age of 18 
As of 2002, remember, the chances of being killed before the age of 18 by a non-family member is below 10%. Ugh, heartbreaking. Now, the reason that we have two stories today was because there wasn't a lot I could find on the Michelle Kehoe case. Um, In fact, the last thing I have to say about it was that she did try for a retrial, oh, probably back in like the 2016, maybe I would say. What was interesting is the grounds for a retrial is I don't see why she deserves one. I mean, she got life in prison and then an additional 25 years. I think that's a pretty fair sentence for the slaying of her children. Next, we're going to talk about Susan Smith. Now, this was a huge story. This was like a national manhunt for this supposed criminal. It's just crazy. Let's just jump right in. So, the story of Susan Smith takes place in Union, South Carolina. At the time, it was a small town of like five blocks downtown. And it was in an isolated place uh, because of the way it was off of the highway. Much like Michelle's story that we just listened to, Susan Smith and her family were also attacked by a man. A black man got into her car, made her drive out in an isolated area, of course, and then just just made her get out and took off with her car. Yeah, that he left with her boys in the back of it. She gave a very very vague description to the police. It was so vague that it was reported as suspicious and eventually they had to pull the sketch composite from circulating through the media because they were questioning it so much. Now remember, this was a nationwide hunt. So basically, yeah, Susan had her boys. She said that they were going to visit a friend. It was nighttime and in an isolated area where there was absolutely nobody around at a red light, he jumped in her car made her drive out to an isolated area, kicked her out of the car, basically, and then just took off with her boys. Susan, much like Michelle, made it to a neighbor's house of where the attack happened, where they immediately called 911 and a sheriff came with, you know, everybody in suit. Now, um, the sheriff called SLED, which is a highly trained police unit, and he also called the FBI, so good for him. I also want to add that, you know, the boy's father, David Smith, immediately rushed to be with Susan. And in an interview with NBC, he said that he literally had to pick her up off the floor, take her to the room and sit her on the couch before he had to call his dad. Everyone maintains that David completely believed Susan. He never in any way had a reason to doubt her or was suspicious of her. By all appearances, nobody really had a reason to doubt her until they started to investigate. See, a nationwide search began for the cars and the boys. As standard practice for child abduction, there were two investigations. One was for a hunt for her car, her boys, and the men that she accused of hijacking it. And then the other investigation is for anybody else that could be directly involved or have a reason to want to you know, kill the boys or harm them. Even with suspicion looming around the composite and the vague description, there was still an outpour of help and support in the search efforts. Susan made a tearful plea also on air for the return of her boys. And she, um, it's really strange. I'm going to post a video, but she would sit 
like with her eyes closed the whole time and it was almost like she was crying her voice would squeak and everything but it didn't actually look to me like she was crying she just kind of had her eyes closed so weird looking you've got to go check it out so upon investigation doubt began to grow really quickly the timeline was fuzzy like day two she took a lie detector test and failed it so they begin to apply pressure on her when they first straight up accused her and kind of tried like a really aggressive approach she totally became belligerent detective said she was cussing and angry so they knew intimidation was not going to work but they were extremely suspicious with her during this time susan and david went ahead and stayed at susan's mom's and it just kind of sounded like that was the hub of everyone david's dad said it was like a roller coaster of hearsay people were coming and going and it was just like a really wild time in search efforts, divers searched the waters of the lake near the area up to 100 feet out. The FBI also searched Susan's house, but both came up completely empty. After a week of this manhunt, Susan and David met on camera for another appearance pleading for her boys. And she even had her eyes closed again. She told her kids how much their mama loved them and missed them and the full family. Actually, you know what? I'm just going to play a recording so that you guys can hear Susan Smith for yourself. And this will also be up to view. I want to say to my baby, and your mama loves you so much, and your daddy and his whole family loves you so much, and you guys have got to be strong because you are, which I just know. So that recording was taken a week after the boys had been missing, so seven days. I actually got that from an A&E episode. They began to interview Susan daily after that, and her stories were not adding up. They couldn't verify that she even went to Walmart. As she said that she did, the friend that she claimed to have been going to visit was actually not even home that night. However, however, this was before cell phones and social media. So to try and go to somebody's house and then not be home was not really that weird to me back then. In her written statement, she had claimed there was absolutely no traffic on Carlisle, which is the street she was turning on when the black man was getting into her car, I believe. But investigators said the only reason she would be at a red light would be if there was traffic because the light on Carlisle only turns red in her direction if there's cross traffic. So she changed her statement. And this was the investigation interrogation. It was slow. It was described as a game of chess. They would question her she'd slowly make a move and change things. As she continued to speak about the boys in past tense, things were growing more and more suspicious. And at this point, everybody was skeptical. Dan, where the hell is Nancy when you need it? Nancy Grace, crime reporter. She's judge, jury, and executor. So even the media, even journalists, the news, everyone's beginning to question this lady, Susan Smith. On day nine, They go on all major news networks, David Smith and Susan Smith, the parents of the two boys. They declared their innocence 
and they pleaded for their boys. She had on glasses and her eyes were actually open this time. I am going to play this clip for you guys. As a mother, it's only a natural instinct to protect your children from any harm. And the hardest part of this whole ordeal is not knowing if your children are getting what they need to survive. And I will also have that video posted for you guys. So what's crazy is that same day, Susan met with police behind a local church and she broke down and admitted to what she did. This was Thursday, November 3rd, around 3 p.m. She asked for the officer's gun so she could kill herself. And then she admitted that the car was at the bottom of the lake with her boys in it. What's so sad is that car was only 22 feet further than the diver searched. She was immediately arrested and she waived her right to a bond. The boys were laid to rest in a casket together and the whole town mourned. What's so awful too is that her husband, the boy's father, really believed Susan the entire time and he had no inkling that she did this and was capable of such a thing. So, on to Susan's trial. Ugh, the judge put a gag order on everybody. He allowed no cameras, and um, the defense actually decided not to move the trial, and they kept it local. So crazy. I guess, you know, she'd already admitted what she did and everything. So, um, it was only a 17-day trial. It began July 17, 1995. The prosecution had the approach to show people why she killed her kids, which was so weird because it's a pretty black and white situation. She already admitted guilt. It's not something that the prosecution had to do. I think they just wanted to. I think they wanted to because it's small town. They wanted to air it all out there and they wanted to show everyone like, look, we're going to nail this bitch. All right. So in South Carolina, there's two parts of the death penalty cases. One is whether they're guilty or innocent. And then two is sentencing. Because she gave a written confession um, to strapping her children in the car and rolling her car into the lake, it was obvious that she was guilty. And so because she immediately lied after she committed this act, it shows that she knows it was wrong. Um, But the prosecution claimed they wanted to dot I's and cross T's. I think they wanted to shine on, but whatever. The prosecution presented a letter from John Finley. This was Susan's ex-boyfriend. A week before the murders, he had broken up with her and outlined all the reasons why in a typed letter. And when you see this letter, it's so hacky. I mean, like, he literally has the whole, I mean, sincerely typed up and everything and then just gives a signature. Like, he's sending a business paper. He said that her kids were one of the main reasons for breaking up with her. He didn't even want kids, period, and definitely not at that time. But the defense claims that Susan had a history of suicide and was even hospitalized for her in high school. She had depression. Um, Her boyfriend dumped her. Her family had a history of alcoholism, too. This is sounding so familiar um, to Michelle Kehoe. Her stepdad testified that he molested her as a child. Um, He was head of their county's Christian coalition and chairman to the Republican Party of their town. He started molesting her when she was 15, and the last time he did this was three 
months before she murdered her sons. What the fuck? Okay. So all this does is complicate things. And it almost humanized Susan to the jury. Because Susan never claimed insanity. The prosecution couldn't have her re-examined themselves. The idea that the defense has is ridiculous to me, though. If she killed herself with her boys, fine. But I don't know. She didn't just snap either, I don't think. I agree with juror Mike Roberts. He said the way she made decisions was not rational, but she knew right from wrong. So trial one had only one week of testimony in jurors. It took two and a half hours for them to return with a guilty verdict of two counts of murder. Now, because the prosecution couldn't shut the hell up and wanted to prove why she did it, she got to show, you know, cause. And um, I presume they mustn't have anticipated the defense's ability to really humanize Susan. So in July 24th, 1995, the penalty phase began. The prosecution had a big recreation done of the drowning. What was so wild is in the recreation, they had a camera from the shore and they had a camera inside the car from the perspective of the two boys and what the boys went through. Now, shockingly, it took an entire six minutes for this car to actually sink. Y'all know how long one minute of silence is. Imagine six minutes. It was a very powerful and emotional play said the jurors and then David Smith testified and he testified as almost like a time capsule what the boys did what they were like who they were even the prosecutor cried and apologized to David for putting him up on that stand and making him do that not only did the prosecution have witnesses though so did the defense people who loved the boys argued not to kill Susan and it worked Susan got a life sentence now what's interesting and this is the exact thing that Michelle Kehoe um, judge argued against happening he said that she couldn't have people argue um, for her on her defense who loved her and her boys several jurors say the people closest to Susan could have helped her but they chose not to okay they just let whatever was going on with Susan go on Unlike Michelle Kehoe's husband, Susan Smith's husband was very disappointed that she was not given the death penalty. She is now 48, and she has been disciplined two times for having sex with correctional officers. This is according to a special that was ran on the Dr. Oz show. Okay, so one of the correction officers went on the show. What happened was he'd been a guard for 15 years. Six months before the sex act, she began asking for him, like making up reasons that she needed to talk to a superior in her wing and things like that. He claims to have been seduced by her. And he said it wasn't until he was the only officer to oversee her in the event center after a class or whatever the hell they did that she had to clean up. And he said they had 90 minutes alone. And in those 90 minutes, they had sex. Susan Smith claims, though, that he seduced her And they, like, did it a bunch of times. Weeks after, while the guard was on vacation, Susan reported him and actually got herself transferred. Now, the guards maintained, though, that Susan wanted to get transferred to be closer to her mom. And that's exactly what she got out of that. 
what's true, what's not true, I don't know. But that is really all we know about Susan Smith and where she's at in her life now. Also, though, David did an interview with Dr. Oz in 2016, September 20th. And I'm actually going to um, play a clip. It's a recording of David Smith discussing any signs of Susan being dangerous to the kids. Susan was a very, very good mother up until that night. Talking to her since at all, she had a relationship with her now. I've only spoken to Susan one time since she confessed, and that was about a month after her confession. What did you say? Well, you know, obviously I did ask her why she did it. All she would tell me was she didn't know why, but that she was sorry. But, you know, even her apology was very, like, nonchalant or very relaxed, very calm, and she very simply put it, she said, I don't know why, and I'm sorry. It's hard to accept the apology. Under those conditions, and after what she did, yes. Oh, heartbreaking. Now, David did go on to remarry, and he had two children. He has pictures of the two boys in his home, and he still honors her memory. He has a beautiful memorial set up for the boys, but the time in 2016, he actually told interviewers he had not taken children to the lake, nor the memorial, because it was just such a sad place. It's so important when you hear of people struggling, even if they're good moms, even if they're good people, when you hear somebody struggling, you need to help them and help them seek help also. Eerie similarities that I wanted to share between these two women is that one, both were victims of molestation. Both had their father pass away when they were six. Both came from families of alcoholics, and I'm sure there's many other similarities other than they're both having had prior suicide attempts and hospitalizations. Anyway, guys, thank you so much for tuning in with Storytime with me. If you wouldn't mind, um, especially if you're a listener on Apple Podcasts, going on and just leaving me a five-star review. Go check out my site so that you can get more information on these crimes. I'll put a description in the episode link below. And then also have a great day. Stay safe out there. Get help if you need it. Rock on and I'll see you guys next week.